Every day, we rely on food, fuel, and fiber. But how much do you know about these industries we depend on? In this podcast, we dive deep into the production and processes of these everyday essentials. This is Field Points, an original podcast production from Siri Solutions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Field Points. I'm your host, Morgan Seger, and I cannot wait to get started. I first wanted to welcome you to the first episode of our first series here at Field Points. Our goal is to have a collection of series that are all focused on different segments of production agriculture. We hope by having a series this allows us to dive really deep into these topics so our listeners can gain a better understanding of how each segment of this industry impacts our everyday. For each series, I will have a different co-host who will be an expert in that subject and help us dive deep into those conversations. In this first series, we are focusing on stewardship in agriculture. So my co-host is Sina Parks, the conservation specialist with Series Solutions. She will be helping me guide these conversations as we go through the next three episodes. So first, let's meet Sina. Yeah, so I grew up on a small corn and soybean rotation farm um, in Montgomery County, and then I graduated from high school, you know, while in high school did all the 4-H and FFA things, and then went to Purdue. I graduated from Purdue, I spent a couple years in Texas, so I got to see a different part of the country, Um, and then I moved back, and um, I don't know, a few years after we moved back, I started working for farm credit for a few years, so I saw the finance side and interacted with um, farmers on that, and then I was able to move into the Soil and Water District, and I served as the conservation director for Montgomery County Soil and Water for um, um, almost a decade, and then started in this new role at Ceres with the stewardship specialist. Awesome. So how did you um, get pulled into stewardship? Was that just kind of happenstance, or is that something you were trying to work towards? If you had told me when I graduated from college that this would be the direction I would go, I probably would have laughed just because it wasn't something maybe quite as forefront to me. Um, But conservation and no-till and um, protecting water quality and erosion and, you know, preserving the farm that I grew up on was always very important to my grandfather, passing on to my father, you know, and then to me and my brother. And so I think, I think it's probably always been a piece of me. I just didn't realize the importance maybe it had in life. Sure. Well, it's neat that you're able to now serve in a role that's also, you know, along those same causes. Um, how would you describe your position at Ceres? Like, what are you primarily working on? Uh, I get to work in a lot of different areas related to stewardship. I get to have conversations with um, farmers and sales staff about uh, USDA programs, because I have that background. So when they have questions um with customers that are involved in certain programs, I get to have that conversation. I get to talk about cover crops. I get to talk about implementing new practices on the farm. I get to work with carbon um, and that whole program. So it's a lot of different things every day, and that's probably one of the things I like the most about it. Yeah, well, and I'm super excited to have you as a co-host for this series because I think that we're going to be able to really dive into like each of those different things and really um, go deep into what that actually means because we hear a lot of kind of um, clickbaity phrases and words being thrown around. So um, what I'm really hoping throughout the series is that we can get some actionable steps and really get a deeper understanding of what stewardship means, especially in our trade area here in Indiana and Michigan. So what are you most excited about 
in this podcast series? Ooh. I think one of the things I'm most excited about is just getting to talk with different individuals um, on the series team and who we work with and, and how what we each do works together and makes us part of a team that can um, continue to be a trusted advisor for our farmers. The members of the co-op can see me as like another tool in the toolbox for the series staff. Um, and so we have these different options that we are working on rolling out as far as you know, whether it's a data piece or whether it's carbon that they're interested or if they're wanting to make changes on the farm, you know, being able to help facilitate some of those conversations so that that they're not having to pull resources from multiple organizations. It's giving series access to someone internally that they can just take on the farm with them and I can sit down and talk with growers and we can have, you know, that team approach and we can all talk together at the same time. Yeah. If someone is, um, wanting to learn more about that, how would they reach out to you or what direction would you point them? Um, I think if you're already working with a series branch, I think reaching out to your salesman and having them get me in, con get in contact with me would be the easiest way. Um, otherwise, you can find me on series website. I'll be sure to link out to the page that Sina was referring to on series website in our show notes, and those will be available at series.coop. Now it's time to meet our first guest, Dan Blocker. Okay, well, uh, coming up here at the end of September, I will have been in the co-op system for 34 years. So. Wow. And some of these around now, I'm the old man of the group, but uh, started out uh, at the branch. Northern Huntington County was the first outside salesman they had back in the day. Kind of another dating the deal. We were still in elevator, still grinding feed. Uh, I actually moved in, I kept doing the crop sales, moved into branch managing, and then um, kept going on that for quite a while, and then uh, actually kind of moved into uh, the seed side for a year, managing our seed department, but kind of missed being out on the farm more, so came back, and I've done uh, all sales from, from the rest of the time. So. Okay, so you have lots of experience on farm, kind of in the trenches with yeah. growers. Dan, can you share with us a little bit of an experience of how you've guided a grower in their stewardship journey? Yeah, this is still kind of a newer thing. Um, we've had probably bits and pieces going on probably 10 years or so. Um, so, yeah, you know, maybe at the first we didn't ask enough questions. We would sometimes just go, hey, here's what we can do. And I think as this has progressed, we've learned more of, um, again, asking more questions, trying to find out what the farmer's goal is. So you can kind of set expectations maybe versus um, that, you know, you're going to do this and all of a sudden things are changing. This is a, a work in progress, I guess I'd say, something that won't change the farm operation overnight. So um, plus two, we've learned a lot more. We have so many more variety options and and again, that's where you kind of need to know what the farmer's goals are. So, you know, you just kind of come along beside them and, and help them in that management decision and try and lay out a plan and, and try and see what happens and what Mother Nature gives you. What are some of the questions that you ask those uh, growers as you're trying to figure out what their goal is? Well, I guess, you know, partly got to kind of figure out what their management side is. Um, you know, we've had some do it as basic as just putting wheat out there. 
So again, you're still keeping a cover out there. Um, still, like we sometimes say, put green manure out there to get something back on the ground. Um, so in the springtime, that's a pretty simple, you can go out, you know, whenever, again, it kind of warms up enough, you can get that killed off and not be too much of a hindrance in your planting versus another guy, if you might say he's a little braver, um, and maybe goes with like a cereal rye. I know not too much happens around here, but I know other areas, uh, sometimes you can let that get up five, six foot tall. Again, you're adding a lot more organic matter back in. That gets a little nervous sometimes trying to plant into that or uh, again, depending on what the spring might give you of getting that killed off. Um, but then one of the growers we're going to work with this year, we're actually going to use like a three-way mix. So we're going to have some tillage radishes out there, crimson clover, and then cereal rye. And um, I don't think that'll be too hard to manage come spring. I think we can still get that killed off. It's going into kind of a soil that's kind of tough to work with, kind of not forgiving. And so that's the reason we're going to put the tillage radishes in there as we try and help break up the compaction and, and some of that. So I look and I look forward to hearing how that goes. Yeah. So one question I have is you mentioned that you're asking these questions to find out their goals. What are some of the goals or an example of a goal that a grower has shared with you? Well, the one, a couple of them that we work with, I mean, Another one we do, he's actually on our uh, soil and water board. So being on the board, he's trying to be a little more proactive. He was doing some no-till. Um, he's kind of ramped up his no-till a little more, and now he is starting to work more with like the cover crop side of things. The other thing too, sometimes we think about land for some is getting harder to acquire. So you use the land you have, trying to improve it, and get the you know, most bushels or what the maximum profits you can get out of that. And this is, could be one way of, of boosting more production out of what they already have. Have you ever had anyone come at it just from a profitability standpoint? Or is it usually trying to get these other things and then they're trying to figure out how to be profitable along the way? Well, to be totally honest, uh, of course, sometimes the government helps them make that decision. And again, you stop and think that helps a little bit take some of the risk out. If you're getting a little help, you know, buying or a little more help of because you are trying to conserve, um, then again, that management decision gets a little easier that you're not assuming all the risk. And so another, you know, maybe not on the cover crop side, but even again, some of these guys adapt them back on the no-till side as part of it, um, they, again, maybe are getting in, like a lot of people getting into a labor situation, again, fuel costs where they're at, um, and again, the no-till side even, we know so much more about how to handle things, and again, back on the management side. Um, technology, I guess you want to say, has brought that, I don't know if I want to say easier, but maybe a little more manageable. And what it used to be. So. Dan shared a lot of great examples of how growers are implementing these practices on their farms. Next, Cena shares how growers are being profitable executing on these stewardship practices. I think we have to look at some of the programs and other things that uh, Dan mentioned that we can offset some of those costs with. You know, you've got some of those USDA or SWCD programs that can just 
help provide um, a little bit of income to offset the cost of um, growing expensive inputs or growing price inputs, however you want to look at that. But, um, you know, everything today is getting a little more expensive. And so just giving these farmers an opportunity to be able to offset some of that cost. Um, there's also other opportunities that come out, such as uh, the carbon markets. That seems to be the big hot topic now. But I think there's also um, growers looking at making some of these changes will just start to unlock more and more opportunities as more of a focus turns to climate smart ag practices. And so I think we've talked a lot about no-till and cover crops, but I think it's also important to look at um, even a nutrient management plan and how you apply your, your nutrients throughout the year. Dan, one thing you had mentioned is how brave someone was feeling. And I really like that because I feel like sometimes it's just kind of intimidating. Um, do you have kind of like a success story you could share where someone was brave and it worked out and kind of, you know, is it repeatable for them? Yeah, uh, I know one of the things you guys were kind of asking if we've had any failures. Well, I'll bring up one example. A guy uh, would have been two years ago. Well, he'd done a little bit of it, decided to go into it, both feet, you might say. Got an air seeder and put cereal rye out. And I forget the spring, but some kind of got a little uh, behind. And so got it up to probably five, six foot tall. Plus, he had very good germ, so very thick, planted corn into it. Um, corn struggled a little bit getting up through it, but um, maybe took a little of the top end off. But it wasn't a failure. Um, you know, he, uh, again, went right back at it next year, adjusted the seeding rate a little bit. I think got more timely of getting it killed down in the spring. And so, but again, that's a little bit like, how farmers are too. I mean, they won't give up just after one try. So, um, so I think, you know, there again, he's, he's making it work. Uh, I think it, he's got a little more rolling ground, a little more clay ground. That's again, a little less forgiving. So this is a way back kind of, like I said, maybe trying to get some more out of that ground, um, just by some of these practices. Um, you know, it gets a little tricky, again, the farmer that's going to try the three-way, we're actually going to fly it on. Okay. We have tried in the past, uh, when it was in beans one year, we used a very early bean, and we were able to get it harvested timely, and we spread it with our own. We have an airflow at my branch, so we can do a pretty good job spreading the seed with the fertilizer. And so we got it out there timely, got a rain, I think he vertical tilted in, and we had a good success story on that one that year. Some others we've tried, we just got a little later, and again, you kind of get a little reliant on rain, and um, it, it wasn't as successful. So back to this year, we're going to put it on with the plane here in a week or so, and, and it's corn this year. And so hopefully we're early enough that, again, we can get some nice fall rains here and and uh, we get a good, the radish goes down, helps us break up that compaction, and we get a nice spring seed bed, so. Gotcha, now I haven't seen a whole lot of corn firing yet. Um, right. Do you have like a general best practice for when people are gonna be flying it on? Well, to do your radish or the crimson clover, actually it's timing for our, this area I'm in, we should be, I think, the latest would be, if I remember the dates, like September 14th. Okay. So, 
that's where I just talked to the aerial guy yesterday, and we're probably going to give it another week. Then maybe see if we could get real lucky and try and time it in front of a rain to help it go down in. Now, if you have not flown on cover crop seed before, harvest might be a different experience for you the first time. So Dan explains what a successful cover crop will look like when you're harvesting your field. Hopefully by that time, you are thinking you've got a weed control problem, and actually it's <laughs> your radishes are kicking in and might have the rye kicking in a little by then, but the radish usually doesn't take too long if it gets in there and gets some rain on it. So... So that's what we would hope for. We'll see greed instead of brown dirt when he starts harvesting. Well, and it's funny, um, better get two, three years ago, went by a cornfield and kind of forgot about, well, actually it's another hunting county grow that's on our soil and water board. And he had done in crop. And uh, I was thinking, wow, look at that terrible weed control. That was actually his cover crop coming up looking pretty good. Like, oh, good job. And you go talk to anybody's weed control, but then it, it wasn't a problem. It was supposed to be there. So That's funny. Do you see people um, trying to do similar things with soybeans, or are they not interceding with soybeans some, as much? I think, I think we, well, the other thing sometimes too, well, again, it depends on what you're trying. If it is just, say, a wheat or a cereal rye, your beans are coming off usually early enough, you wouldn't have to Plains a little extra money, um, and again, we could kind of do it with fertilizer. So you're okay. you could combine it and, and save an app on that. So the beans are a little different now. It depends again what you're deciding you want to. You actually, if if you did want to try the radishes or some of these other mixes, then yeah, you probably would fly those on too, just because of the time. Okay. They need to be in. So. Um. So as. You know, we think about this and we think about things growing in the fall. Um, how is this impacting like traditional practices like fall burn down and things like that? Are they replacing, you know, practices with these or do they work together? Or? Um, no, really, you pretty much are replacing them. But the other thing to think about, if you do get a good cover crop establishment, well, then that should help you keep a good cover, they might just say, and smother out any of the weeds. So if you have this working correctly, in a way, that would actually kind of, might say, help you. Okay. So I think some important things to note as we're listening to Dan talk about these different examples of um, options is that, one, you really need to work with your trusted advisor, whether that's your agronomist, your co-op, whoever that is, um, and make sure that you're doing planning and you're communicating back and forth with them to be able to help make sure that they know what your plan is so that they can help you to the um, get the best advantages um, for those practices. And then also, I think um, one of the things that Dan mentioned is, you know, they're starting on one field. I think we sometimes think that we have to do it all. And we don't always have to start on the whole farm. We pick one field that you want to try it on or a couple fields, but don't, don't think that you have to do the biggest, bestest, most, you know, eight-way mix or whatever that is that you want to try it's okay to start small and it's okay to start with one piece of the stewardship process. So when people are thinking about choosing a field, do you have a recommendation on, you know, are there any characteristics that would lend themselves to these types of practices? I think it depends on the grower and the management style of that grower. Like Dan mentioned earlier, um, you know, if, if they're very intensive in how they manage their farm, then I think, you pick a farm that maybe is a little more complicated if they're 
not quite as intensive in how they manage or, um, you know, they, they tend to do the same on all their farms, you look at one that maybe is a little easier to manage. Or if they're like me and they are not brave, you put it on the furthest away farm so they don't see it <laughs> yeah. and change their mind. Oh, there's that as well. Yeah, 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 that's that's a good idea. <laughs> One thing I was going to touch on what Cena just mentioned, the planning part, because you do got to be careful, like maybe not so much on the bean crop, but um, corn crop, we're sometimes doing a lot of two-pass corn programs. So you do got to think a little bit about what that chemistry is and what its residual is especially, you know, we're talking here going in September. Uh, and again, maybe maybe if you were just putting in a wheat or something kind of basic, maybe wouldn't be hampered as much as what we're looking at doing here with the radishes and the clover. Um, so again, yes, you need to be kind of thinking of your chemistry that you're doing in the spring too. So far, we have spent a lot of time talking about the management practice of cover crops. Next, Dan's going to walk us through some other practices that can lead to profitability on your farm while enhancing your stewardship. I want to say early 90s, you know, the no-till thing kicked in pretty hot and heavy. And I kind of just relate to Huntington County, but um, big majority really kicked it in. And then some of them felt, you know, after a couple of years that, you know, it just wasn't quite working. And so went back to fair amount of tillage. And I would say we probably still are, but we've, again, I guess you'd say we've had variations of it. Um, probably a lot of our beans are getting no-tilled. Um, they feel just the beans can, um, the seed bed, I guess you say, maybe could be a little more forgiving to get in a bean up versus what, how particular a corn plant is. Um, but even then, we've developed the, the, the uh, vertical tillage type of system. So we're still not doing deep ripping. We're just working, again, kind of that couple inches to get the seed bed prepped. And then some of that's happening for corn, too. So um, I guess a little piece of that, again, as we've changed some of our chemistries, we've got more options to where the... Uh, Anyway, a field cultivator is, you know, was doing all for good as our weed control versus uh, some of our chemistry options. So again, as we've developed that, that has helped us open the door that we can still manage weeds. And it, the corn side's always stayed pretty easy. Um, it's in the bean side where we were having issues. So that's just a piece of some of those. And, and again, then I was going to say, I think we have had some more look more into like the no-till piece too so yeah it seems like your timeline also kind of lines up when for soybeans at least a lot of people transition from a drill to planter yeah. so that might be making right. no-till right. even more viable because they're getting the seed placed better well you're exactly right you know you're i actually in one of my summer jobs um when the no-till thing and, and drilling beans was kind of kicking in the soil and water service in county we did custom drilling. So I was running around all over Hunting County with a drill. Well, it was kind of a, uh, what do we call that? Spilled. Uh, controlled spill. Controlled spill. <laughs> there you go. I knew we had a saying for it. And you're right. The planters now, and moving into the, the 15 inch rows or even the drills, they they actually have a planting unit. 
so yes, we have again came a long way in being able to just planning technology. So for the success of no-till in corn, you said that you know people moved away from it after they felt like it wasn't working. Was it just that the crop wasn't looking as well? Was it yielding as well? Were they not getting the stand? I, I think they just felt they were struggling getting it out of the ground and getting okay. the stand. But I, I think, again, um, John Deere, Precision, anybody, you have downforce, you have upforce, you have just so many things you can you know, be working with in the cab, or it can be sensing it. You know, that it's, again, is eliminated. We talk about sometimes a thousand variables. Well, some of this stuff has just helped eliminate all those variables to where the no-till corn, I think, has started make a little comeback. Yeah. And I would think that, you know, if you're looking over like the last 30 years, that seedling bigger has probably improved and the genetics are better as well. So maybe this is a sign for anyone who did it and called it quits that maybe it's time to try it again. Right. I think too, when you start talking about um, profitability, it's, it's important to note that we need to look at all of the inputs to a crop as far as like what is making that profitable. I don't know that you can always pinpoint your profitability on one thing. There's so many variables that play into um, that season, you know, whether it's Mother Nature, whether it's uh, chemical prices, whether it's fertilizer prices, whether it's trying a new practice. I mean, there's just so many different pieces that play into that. But we really have to keep in mind that profitability isn't necessarily tied to just one piece of what the farmer is doing, that they all kind of play together. Um, and then I think another thing that's important that we talked about, there's a misconception that farmers just do this because it's the right thing. Like farmers are still running a business and they still have to operate as a business. And if they're not making money, then they can't continue to do what they're doing. Yeah. So I think that's a very important detail. Um, I think as humans on this planet, we all kind of feel like, well, we should be doing this no matter what, but then you're right. They have books that need to, you know, work out at the end of the day. Um, so do you work with any growers that have done, um, you know, a good job or something unique in the way they are measuring this? I would say the growers who have a better idea of what their profitability or their return on investment is comes to the ones who keep more data. Data is only going to become more and more important, I'm afraid, as we uh, just continue to move through each year and there's more Um, consumers asking questions and the education process that has to go back and forth between the farmer and the consumer. But I think data and having numbers, knowing what all of your inputs are, knowing the field by field cost that you have, knowing how much you're selling the grain for that's coming off of that field, or at least trying to be field by field, or at least somewhat more specific will play a big key role in, in knowing going forward if you're profitable or not. Um, something what Cena was talking about before I was going to bring up about something about what you're talking about the data piece so with this Trutera whatever the other name was we've been probably what three four five years you might say kind of hit and missing with it and I will say one of the big things again with everything we are doing in the ag world now um, it was hard 
and again, like you say, it's pretty select on some of the farmers with all this data. But I think, I'm going to say, I guess, Ceres needs to be complimented, you might say, to have the foresight to partner with like Cena because it has, I can be a lot more um, proactive with it, I guess I'd say, thinking I can call Cena and she can work with the grower direct, getting this data. You know, we are kind of unique in, again, taking the step we did. And I think we can be a leader in this by what we've done. For sure. I definitely can see how being an odd, your expert is really helpful, especially, you know, just as you've shared stories, you've talked about how much everything has changed and staying on top of general crop practices, plus the way everything is evolving is that's a heavy load. So being able to work as a team, I could see that being really valuable. Yeah. Well, and I appreciate having salesmen like Dan that I can lean on and ask questions to and, and be able to go back and forth because it is, it takes the whole team to, to be, um, advising and helping the grower. Sure does. And I think it helps the grower be a little more open also. Um, by being able to kind of say we have an expert here. Again, it's a new enough thing. Uh, the carbon piece, just everybody's coming out of the woodwork. And so, yeah, they are struggling to try and know where to go and how to deal with it. So, Again, I think it's another good asset, you might say, to be able to offer to the farm. Yeah. Real quick, back to your disaster story. Are they still farming? Oh, yeah. Are they still using these stewardship practices? Oh, yeah. Yep. Is it, um, do they still have to be as brave, or are they getting kind of a rhythm? Oh, they're getting a little more comfortable. Good. Yep. Yep. Awesome. Well, thanks for spending this time today and kind of letting us into your world and, and how traditional egg, so to speak, is working with stewardship to really help move the mark with growers. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of our first series. We hope you enjoyed our conversation as we tried to talk specifically around profitability of these real-world applications of improving conservation agriculture. You know, as I think about how I could summarize this, it really comes down to three ways that Dan shared growers are increasing profitability with these stewardship efforts. The first is by managing their labor and wear and tear and fuel on their equipment. Next is through programs. So Sina shared some of the programs through the government that can help reduce risk as growers are making these changes and also the opportunity there is to participate in carbon markets, which we'll dive into more in depth in our third episode of this series. And finally, improved soil health. Really improving soil health and improving the entire environment on your operation is also going to lead to farm profitability. In our second episode of this series, we'll be joined by Betsy Bauer, an agronomist from Series Solutions, and we will be focusing on that last point, improving soil health. She'll talk about how she sees growers doing that and the implications it has for their operation. The show notes for this episode will be available at series.coop. That's C-E-R-E-S dot C-O-O-P. If you enjoyed this deeper dive, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Your review and feedback will help other listeners like you find our podcast, and we are so thankful for that. 